You're listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. Today on the show, Pushing Human Limits, or Limitless. Life, the Universe, and Everything Else explores the intersection of science and society. If you have questions or comments about the show, or you'd like to suggest a topic, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook. Or send us an email at l-u-e-e-podcast at winnipegskeptics.com. Show notes and references can be found at l-u-e-e-podcast.com. My name is Ashlyn Noble and I'll be your host. Today on the show we have Lauren Bailey. Hi. Laura Creek Newman. Hi there. And Jem Newman. Hello. Uh, this is my show and my topic choice and... Watching documentaries of things that people do to torture themselves is one of my favorite things. Uh, I love shows about people doing long cross-country sled dog races, people who compete in CrossFit championships, people who go on those long journeys through the jungle for money. Uh, We're just watching, what is it, Eco Challenge? That's a ridiculous show. They get so many people who want to do these ridiculous things. (laughs) Uh, so the more it tortures a person and they have to be doing it to themselves the more I want to watch them do that horrible thing (laughs) so I've long been interested in people pushing their limits and pushing things to the limit of human ability and so I wanted to just take on some of those stories and talk about them and see if we can learn anything about the human condition up first Laura's going to take us real low telling everybody about saturation diving. So this is something that I stumbled across through my love of Atlas Obscura and all of these quirky, interesting stories that help me uh, procrastinate from my work. Um, I had never heard of this before. And I know that, uh, or I think that for some of you, this was a relatively new topic as well. I'm not sure if any of you had heard of saturation diving. Yeah, I had. I have watched documentaries about this. Okay. Okay. So it's just me then. But in any case, I find it absolutely fascinating. I think most of us are familiar with the concept of diving. Scuba diving is as what we often think of. And one of the things that happens with scuba diving is that, of course, as you dive to the depths, there's increased pressure from the water, and so there's compression that happens. And then as people are going to surface, they need to surface very slowly or decompress very slowly. Otherwise, they can get the bends, which is basically the, the gases that have dissolved into their body tissues from the pressure. They, they reemerge very quickly and form bubbles, and that can be very painful or dangerous. Typically, scuba divers uh, that go down for short periods of time actually spend a lot of their time in the going down and especially in the coming up part of it. So for industries or, or for things that need to happen underwater, this actually chews up a lot of time and resources with people constantly decompressing after their work. 
So the concept of saturation diving was born and it was actually first tested out in the 1930s, very briefly in about a 24 hour period. But then it was more fully developed in the late 1950s, but especially over um, in the 1960s through a series of US Navy experiments with uh, something called the Sea Lab. So the concept with this is that once divers have have uh, reached their depth and their tissues have become fully saturated or the gases have uh, completely diffused into their tissues and bodies, um, they can stay at that depth for long periods of time. We really don't actually know how long they can stay there, but we know that they can stay there not just for a few hours, but they can stay there for days. And it doesn't make a difference on their decompression time. So whether you spend an hour at 300 meters underwater or three weeks at that depth, you spend the same amount of time decompressing. So this became very useful in fields that require uh, underwater work, especially in the oil and gas industries, because so many of the rigs are offshore. And of course they need repair or, or um, they're being built or, or whatever it is. So um, this became a, a really viable option for allowing this work to be done in a way that didn't where the divers and the workers didn't spend most of their time just in between the surface and um, their working depth. So that's what's really interesting uh, about this. So the longest period of time that I could find uh, that someone sent at saturation was about 44 days. Wow. Um, it's possible that there's longer. I just really, I couldn't find it in the amount of time that I had for research. That's like real body hacking. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Like they're just, they're just living at this time, like that's more than a month. And most saturation divers, when they go on tours, their tours are 28 days at a time. And now that includes from the time that they step into the pressurized chamber to the time that they step out again. So that includes their compression and their decompression time. But still they're spending usually about three weeks at the pressures of say 750 feet underwater. That's too much. That's almost as bad as studying for med school. <laughs> Um, now how they do this is really neat. So they live in, uh, something they often call it a capsule or, or, uh, their living quarters basically. And it's a really small living quarters, of course, because it's hard to pressurize a large place. So it's, it's very small and the living quarters are, um, are pressurized, uh, slowly to whatever pressure they're going to be going to. When this was first developed, and especially with the sea lab experiments, they did put these capsules underwater or on the sea floor, wherever it was. But now in a lot of cases, the capsules are actually either within a ship. So a ship sitting on the water has this capsule within it, or it's attached to the ship anchored like just below in the water. So these people are living at a pressure of say 300 meters of water, but they're actually above water, which is kind of like a mind bend <laughs> to me to think of it that way. Because the way that they talk about it as well is as soon as they enter the capsule, they're sort of thinking as though they're underwater. And of course, in a lot of cases, there's very few windows, so they don't see the outside world. If this qualifies as a mind bend, would it give you the mind bends? <laughs> oh. Saturation diving joke. Oh. I saw that hanging there and I left it. <laughs> But I'm like, oh, is Jem going to pick that up? <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. So they have the, the bubble inside the ship. Yeah. And they put the guy in it and pressurize it? 
Yeah, yeah. So doesn't he have to come out of pressure in between? No, so what they do, so everything, once they go in, everything is airlocked in and everything gets, it gets pressurized at the same time up to depth pressure. So then once they, they get to whatever depth pressure is, then when it is time to go out into the ocean and work, they get into a pressurized diving bell. So the diving bell is the same pressure as well and brings them down to that depth. Okay. So the workers... So there's like a pressurized little elevator. Yeah, yeah. Like it's another contained little capsule there that that brings them down so they never leave that pressure until it's time to decompress everything so all of their food is prepared for them um, and it's sent through airlocks in order to do that and anything that they need is sent back and forth through through airlocks and on these ships they even have um, pressurized like escape boats if the ship needs to be evacuated so that they can stay at pressure if they need to get off the ship which is pretty cool now, life in this capsule is a lot different than life on land. Of course, you know, you're in a tiny compartment. They usually will have teams of around 12 people working in these things at a time. So in a lot of this work, it's going like 24-7. So each group of three, they're always grouped of three, and uh, they work for eight hours, and then they rest the rest of the time. So it's kind of like a constant... A constant flow there but they're often you know their their space is basically a small table that they can sit around a little bit of walking space and then go to the diving bell hatch and then to their bunks and how many people have to share this hellhole it depends on the capsule and that but uh usually there'll be about six people per like pod and there'll be like multiple pods oh my god imagine the smell <laughs> it is interesting and it's basically all men of course and they're often large guys too all trying to sleep in these tiny little bunks and live in this tiny little space which i find kind of funny but i'm sure is pretty cramped and pretty pretty tough the money must be good it is apparently they can make <laughs> up to fourteen hundred dollars a day when they're working okay I'll go for 44 days or whatever it is. <laughs> <laughs> right? You know, I, I, now that being said, like you, you go for a tour for 28 days, you're required to take at least 28 days off in between tours. You can't go back any earlier than that. So, it, you know, you're working a maximum of like six months a year. That's still $39,000 a month. Right. Like for 29 days, that's 39 grand. I could take a month off, spend yeah. 15 grand, come back, would be fine. Oh, totally. Totally. <laughs> like it's, it's really good money, but you know, you have to deal with a lot of these things. So you're, you're isolated. You have to deal with the claustrophobia. You have to do like hard physical labor because these guys, like they're not just, they're not diving for fun, right? They're going down and working for six hours straight welding massive oil rigs, right? Once you're down there, there's no breaks. You're, you're working until it's time to come back up which can take, it can take an hour to get down from the ship and back sometimes, depending on how deep they're going. So it's, it's pretty intense work. It's really interesting too. So they obviously don't just breathe air because that wouldn't work at uh, that type of pressure. So they're actually breathing a mixture of mainly helium and oxygen, and it'll have a bit of nitrogen thrown in there, depending on the depth that they're working at. 
So that actually changes the whole living conditions as well. Because they all sound like McMeows. They do, yeah. Apparently they, they call it like duck voice and it's almost incomprehensible. And uh, reading some accounts of it, when you have people from different backgrounds with different first languages or accents, plus duck voice, it can be very challenging <laughs> to work in that situation. So not only that, but helium is a terrible heat conductor. So they're cold all of the time. The capsules actually have their heat at like 30 degrees or higher um, because helium is just, it doesn't keep the heat. It's also a lot denser than regular air, so it's actually physically harder to breathe. I was reading uh, an interesting study talking about the nutritional needs of saturation divers, and it looks like they are burning half again as many calories as they would be on land during their dive. Wow. Partly just because of the increased work of breathing and, and on the cardiovascular system. Having it be hard to breathe is so scary. No, it's not that they feel like it's hard to breathe. From what I can tell, that's not the sensation. It's really? just... They don't feel any sort of like extra exertion? No, because there's enough oxygen. Like there is enough oxygen. It's just that their body works harder to breathe, if that makes sense. Yeah. But that's really interesting. So it looks like they were doing um, metabolic studies and it looked like people were burning an average of an extra 400 calories a day down there. And they're actually doing a lot less physical activity because, of course, think of the capsule, the size of it. Where could you do push-ups or jumping jacks or, you know, there's no treadmill in there, right? So they're physically active for their six-ish hours a day and then they're sedentary for the rest of the time. They're sedentary or they're sleeping. So they're doing less physical activity, but they're burning way more calories. And they're actually losing a lot more muscle mass down there as well. And they think it's just the effects of the pressure. It actually suppresses the body's ability to build muscle, which is kind of interesting as well. So that was a bit of a tangent there. But, you know, nutrition and stuff, I can't help but talk about that. That's basically what saturation diving is. They live for about 28 days doing it. When they're coming back up, it will often take about a week or longer to do that. So for every 100 feet, I believe, it's a day plus an extra day. So often they're the last week, week and a half of their tour is actually spent slowly coming back up, uh, releasing the pressure so that they don't get the bends. I keep picturing it like if you've seen the movie The Abyss with the the liquid oxygen. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, of course. Yeah. The Abyss is a great movie. Yeah. One of my favorite movies when I was a kid. I just keep picturing them like living in this pink oxygenated water. <laughs> and I yeah. know that's not true. It is not true. But apparently the, uh, the, the amount of time that people spend in this industry on average is very, very short. It's about two years for most people. But of course, you have the few veterans who've been doing it for a really long time. Those those extreme of the extreme. And then most people who do a couple of tours and that's it. They're done. I read that it's like maybe if you've got um, underwater welders or something, if there's 2000 of them, you might have 20 that are saturation divers. Is it they're really rare or something? They are really rare. And part of it is that it's it's a hard job to do it and like mentally it's a really hard thing to do to go down there as as we just kind of discussed so yeah it's not that there aren't a lot of them and then there is some question about how many positions actually exist for these different things and of course this is the kind of thing where experience and skill is really valuable so if you don't have a lot of positions and you've got 
a veteran and a rookie, who are you going to hire, right? You're probably going to take that veteran. So breaking in and being able to make it through and, and continue to get those those contracts is probably pretty difficult. But we need less oil drillers in the world anyway, so that's fine. <laughs> you know, and, and a lot of the a lot of the saturation dives are not just in maintaining active rigs, but in decommissioning old rigs. Oh, well, that's okay then. Yeah. So, you know, as long as we're not building new ones, which I know we are, but we, we are. We and, definitely are. You know, building things, I think they can use robots and submarines and things like that a lot more, but for the, the technical um, repairs or decommissioning and that you need that we haven't found a substitute for, for humans so far. Nothing is dexterous mm-hmm. enough and nothing has the judgment enough. And so that's why they keep using people and it's, just, yeah, it's a lot more cost effective and it's actually safer for the divers to be at saturation because they go through just one decompression mm-hmm. rather than several. Not over and over again. Exactly. Exactly. So long-term health risks for this, we don't have a lot of good studies. I found one study from 1985 saying at that point they didn't see any long-term health risks. Uh, again, if I did a really thorough lit search, which I did not do, I might find more info on that. But I, I think it's more so the the immediate risks and then just, is this a life you can live? Mm-hmm. So this is not what I thought that this was going to be about. So I would say that I have not heard about this before this segment. <laughs> okay. I'm curious. What did you think it was going to be about? Uh, the people who can hold their breath for a redonkulously long time to dive to the bottom of the ocean oh, floor. Oh, free diving. Yeah, yeah. That is also really cool and would have made another great segment. I just thought yeah. this saturation <laughs> diving was kind of cool. <laughs> it's very cool. Yeah, that's wild. It just, I mean, the extreme sport of living with six gross people in a teeny tiny little pod for a month. That just sounds <laughs> the worst. That might be the worst thing we talk about today. <laughs> like it's, it, there are so many uh, parallels to space flight in that. Yeah. Yeah. I, and, and that's funny that you say that, Jen, because one of the favored things of these saturation divers that they love to say is that you can come back from the moon faster than you can come back from saturation diving. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, that's that's really interesting. Um, I you know, because of the helium mix, the air is actually usually and and they have really good um, air handling units on there. The air isn't muggy or hot. So that's good. That would help with the grossness factor. And also people aren't um, people aren't moving around. You know, they're not doing stuff. They're just like reading and watching stuff and sleeping and yeah I guess I was picturing it like more moist because it's underwater (laughs) yeah no totally and that makes sense but like especially when they're not underwater like they have the wet pod and that's where they get into their dive suits and everything like that but that's a separate airlock space from their Mm. their living quarters so that doesn't get in there like the wet areas and the dry areas are totally separate and have different air and and things like that so it seems just sort of sterile is the feeling that I get from it. Yeah. And I mean, that's hard to live with psychologically for that long too. Oh God. Yeah. For most of us. Yeah. (laughs) So yeah. Saturation diving. All right. uh, So I'm going to talk about people who stay on level planes, preferably as level as possible. (laughs) (laughs) So recently the record for how fast a human can run a marathon was broken. Does anyone know what the time was? 
two hours and I don't I don't want to <laughs> some minutes yeah so for quite a while up until very recently it was thought that a sub two hour marathon was physiologically impossible 26.2 miles in under two hours requires a runner to run a 400 meter dash in 68 and a quarter seconds 105 times in a row without faltering <laughs> oh <my laughs> God. I'd rather just die <laughs> I remember the one time I competed in the 200 meter dash. I had bought new shoes that day. I was in uh, high school. I had bought new shoes that day, oh, no. which is the That's worst a bad idea because uh, I had outgrown my previous ones. I was actually at the U of M. Uh, that's where the, the meet was. And I got about 100 meters in and then the front of my toe, because the shoes were longer, caught on the oh, uh, the, the, the sandpapery track surface. Mm -hmm. And I just went sprawling and made bloody skid marks across the track. Oh. <laughs> oh, I, I finished the race. <laughs> uh, and, and technically, I, I finished second last because somebody else did the same thing right before the finish line. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I used to do track and field as uh, one of the many sports that I was forced to at least try. And I did not come in last one time when someone DNF'd. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was not good at track and field. It's very bad. So guarantee you, I could not even run one 400 meter dash in like a minute and eight seconds. That's ridiculous. Uh, yeah, 105 times in a row. Like this person must be like... 100% legs, like, like very, like two meter long legs and a head on top. Like that is so it. <laughs> watching a video of him. What I said to Lauren was this guy just does butt kicks for two hours in a row. <laughs> Cause like his, I'm pretty sure like that butt gets hit every pace. It's quite something to watch. So yeah, the folks who've attempted it are the very tippy top of the elite runner pyramid. There, there are a few of them who have attempted this sub two hour marathon. The guy who managed it is named Eliud Kipchoge. He's a Kenyan. He's a world record marathon runner. He broke the two-hour mark with a marathon time of one hour, 59 minutes, and 40 seconds. Oh, and so that sounds oh. like not a lot less than two hours, but the people who were watching this say that like this was just beyond expectations. They did not think that he could do it 20 whole seconds faster than two hours that was quite a surprise what was the previous record the actual world record uh is two hours one minute and 39 seconds okay and that is his record as well so the week before this feat was accomplished a writer at sportsscientist.com predicted that they would fall short that the advantages provided by new shoes and a flat course would amount to only a one and a half percent improvement and that would be enough to meet the world record but not break that magical two hour number. Some of the tactics that they used in order to get under two hours mean that this time is not an official world record. So whoever decides those things decided that he had too many things going for him that it wouldn't count. Oh, right. Yeah. I read that article when it came out. Can you explain why? Like you said new shoes and a flat track. Yep. Is that all? Uh, so also he had some interesting setups that were very carefully tested over a long period of time. For example, he was surrounded the whole time by pacers, five of them in front and two at the back to like completely negate any sort of drag or wind. Yeah. Oh. Uh, and so that was one of the things. And another thing was he had a car that was 
it shot lasers out the back and showed all of the pacers where to go and how fast to run. So it was too technologically aided to count as a world record. <laughs> <laughs> but he still ran a marathon in under two hours. He did it. Yeah. With his own body. Sure. Like, okay. I Like, he did it with his own body. Like, he still has to be a, a machine <laughs> to Absolutely, do this. Absolutely, yeah. Right? Like, this, we're not... Yeah, there was guidance and things like this, but sports uses that all the time. <laughs> Physically reducing the drag, though, I can see that as yeah. being... Yeah, and perhaps it wasn't an official marathon, like that might have to be part of it also. Right. Because it was just him. Well, Like yeah, they staged okay. this just for him. Now, was it on a single track, just going around and around and around? Uh, yes. Okay. Because it seems to me that most marathons are actually like on, not just on a contained track, but, you know, far ranging. Yeah, and so you have, yeah. Yeah, so you have uh, changes in terrain and like that. Yeah. It still proved what a human can do mm -hmm. in these conditions. But if you were to apply it to regular marathon conditions, it may not be possible. Right, yeah. So the reason that they went to all these links to make sure that he was perfectly perfectly paced is because they've analyzed a lot of data from other world record attempts in marathons and the data shows us that a steady pace throughout the race rather than starting fast and anticipating a slowdown is really key for getting these records when people started doing more of a flat split rather than a sort of an upside down bowl shape where it's faster at the beginning and faster right at the very end the record started uh like cutting seconds off more frequently so after showing us all of these graphs that I was describing, uh, the article from Sports Science says, It's important to understand that this suggests that at the limits of human physiology for long-distance events, running as close as possible to even pace is the best strategy for optimal performance. If you could put time in the bank, then you'd see more world records set with faster starts and a slowing down at the end. And you don't. Huh. Yeah, so I thought that was pretty cool. Like, I would have also thought that starting fast and anticipating your body being tired would be the better strategy, but apparently not. Hmm. I, I thought so too, but uh, but that's just from my own experience with running where I get tired and so I end up slowing down regardless yeah. of what I want to do. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, I'm only running 5K in the morning, not, uh, what, 42? It's 26.2 miles. I don't know what that is in kilometers. That's 42 kilometers. 42.16. I like to remind people that the first person to run a marathon... Was naked? He died. <laughs> <laughs> he ran from marathon to Athens, and then he collapsed and died. And now people just do it for fun. Weird, weird people. Well, and self-torture a little bit. <laughs> well, you you do get the, uh, the runner's high, apparently. Lies. Not everybody does. I've heard tell. Doesn't exist. Yeah, I've, I've never experienced it myself. <laughs> Make myself run anyway. Maybe it's because you're starting off too fast and slowing down too much. <laughs> Uh, so I thought that the arrangement of the runners was pretty interesting. Like, they have to run quite closely together. Like, it looks very uncomfortable. And they switch them out very frequently throughout the marathon because nobody else can keep up that pace, right? Right. So there was something like 50 pacers that they had rotating in and out to keep him going, which is pretty wild. And they chose this formation of runners after doing, like, hundreds of tests in a wind tunnel. Like so much went into this it was all sponsored by <laughs> nike right so right they have tons of money a guy in a wind tunnel is 
is just an amazing visual. <laughs> oh, they had all these plastic models of all the different guys and they would like move them around and make sure that this was completely optimal. It was mm-hmm. wild. That's cool. And yet the Mighty Ducks Flying V was the way to go. Yeah. That was my first thought too. Fly V, come on! They start back out and they form a V. I've heard of this before, but I've never seen it. It's the Flying V. The other big advantage that Kipchoge had was that they marked the course with a narrow track to make sure that he would go exactly 26.2 miles. So in most marathon courses, the marathon is measured by like running the measuring tape around the very shortest way you could possibly do that route. And it takes a lot of training, apparently, to be able to not run a lot more than 26.2 miles when you're doing a marathon. So his advantage was that he didn't have to think about that and he was just like, the path was like 15 centimeters wide and it it was just like, stay on this path and you will do exactly the right amount of distance. And most marathon runners don't have that advantage. Then there's the shoes. Debatably, the key of this whole thing. Sponsored by Nike. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Nike provided Kipchoge with a version of their Vaporfly Next Percent shoes that were not on the market yet and (laughs) maybe still aren't. That's the worst name for a shoe I've ever heard. Right? It has a fucking percentage (laughs) sign in it. It's terrible. Uh, I don't know if that was just like the production name that got leaked and then they decided to stick with it or what it's very bad oh no 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 i think they're gonna stick with that because when you're talking elite sports circles they talk percentages all the time so okay when it, so maybe so it's i, I think they would yeah. do that on purpose because they're talking about one percent better in elite sports is like miles ahead yeah but still it's a bad name yes <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah i actually i couldn't figure out whether they were actually available to purchase yet or not. Because, like, the terminology around shoes is very confusing and, like, very in-group. Like, if you understand it, you're in, and if you don't, you don't. (laughs) But a lot of people were saying, back before the Olympics got cancelled, that the, the shoes should be banned from the Olympics because they were too much of a competitive advantage and that it wasn't fair. But why wouldn't everybody just buy the shoes then if that were the case? Because there are people sponsored by Nike and then there are people Ah. sponsored by other people and those other people wouldn't be allowed to have the fancy Nike shoes and so that's not (laughs) fair. Exactly. different sponsors. Yeah, yeah. It's it's until every company comes up with a comparable thing. They had this same type of thing, uh, controversy happen in swimming a couple years ago when one brand came out with these laser swimsuits that were just shaving times off. Mm -hmm. of whoever was wearing them and then they were talking about whether or not they'd be allowed because the swimsuits were so much better than every other brand (laughs) yeah yeah and like it's not just getting sponsorships but it's like what's available in your country and things like that too so and the olympics especially like they at least pay lip service to saying that they're for amateurs right and that you theoretically shouldn't have to spend millions of dollars to get into the olympics like we all know that's but that's what their their ethos is right well all we have to do is dismantle capitalism so there's no such thing (laughs) as a uh proprietary technology anymore and (laughs) then everybody can have it yeah next month on lue Uh, So back when this whole thing went down, I was listening to uh, one of my favorite NPR shows, The Indicator. Uh, It's an offshoot of Planet Money, which I've talked about on this show before. I really like it. It's about economics, but it's not boring, I promise. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's just like really interesting narratives about how economics touches everything. Uh, And it's really good. So you should listen to it. But I, I was listening to one about these shoes. 
And the guy on there said, Some critics have called the Vaporflies technological doping, arguing that shoes give athletes an unfair advantage over competitors who are not equipped with the same technology. Athletes who are not sponsored or endorsed by Nike, they may even be sponsored or endorsed by their competitors, now have a problem whereby they're going to be questioning going into those games whether they actually have a technological chance of keeping up. So technological doping. And they're talking about how track and field is essentially an arms race now. Whoever can come up with the better shoes is going to win because they're such an advantage. Um, I actually really like the solution that they came to here. Is it the the Greek solution? (laughs) I don't know what that means. The original Olympics. Oh, (laughs) Everything was done nude. (laughs) That would be great, though. I would love to have that go back to that. Uh, Probably more injuries. Oh, yes. (laughs) Uh, I mean, so anyway, r- running is not great for you any way you slice it, but yeah. Uh, but run, yeah. The compromise that they came up with was that track and field governing bodies have issued regulations that prevent shoes from being worn in competition until they've been available to the general public for at least four months. Oh, so I thought that was all right. Like you've got time to try them and break them in. Sure. I think that's that really levels the playing field because then it's not just like some super secret weapon that gets pulled out at the last minute and, and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Pardon me, Laura. It levels the track and field. <laughs> God damn it, Newman. <laughs> anyway, this is Ashlyn's segment. Yeah. Who wants to know why these shoes are so fancy? I do. I do. Okay. Nike explains the kinetics of the cushioning system like this. As the shoe touches down, the bottom plate distributes the force across the first layer of cushioning, fluid or air-filled chambers. That force is taken up by the middle plate. So these are carbon fiber plates that are stacked like a double-decker sandwich. Uh, The middle plate. And transferred upward to the second layer of cushioning, uh, either chambers or foam blocks, and eventually to the top plate. The design allows for two layers of compression, and the plate's force-distributing qualities prevent localized force or hot spots from reaching the foot. Huh. So this basically gives runners almost like a spring-loaded effect. In addition, it's reported that their feet and legs don't get nearly so beat up and tired because it's taking so much force away from those and putting it back out to be useful. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. And I was just thinking too, like thinking of my own running, sometimes I'm like, oh yeah, I can feel it in this joint or that joint, but you wouldn't get that nearly as quickly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting. That's, That's incredible what was it like two years ago now I actually bought some nice running shoes and not just like you know $15 Walmart specials yeah and it it makes a world of difference Mm -hmm. even with fancy shoes and all kinds of pacing help running a marathon in under two hours is still ridiculous and incredible but for some people 26.2 miles is just a warm-up those people (laughs) are ultra marathoners Ultramarathons are becoming increasingly popular, although not nearly attaining the heights of traditional races. There still are not usually spectators or anything at these kinds of events. So an ultramarathon is technically any distance greater than a marathon, but most of them are at least 30 miles, and some are much, much longer. Most participants are men, and most are over 40. So this is something that they take up when they aren't as fast anymore, but they still want to keep racing. (laughs) (laughs) But, 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 what is the average income bracket? Right? (laughs) Yeah, that was not discussed. (laughs) (laughs) They might not be as fast, but they're certainly richer and don't need to work. (laughs) So uh, this quote is from Runner's World magazine, and it summarizes ultra running and ultra marathons so well that I, I couldn't bear to change it. So here it is. Most marathons are run on exactly 26.2 miles of asphalt street, 
which are wide enough to accommodate lots of runners, flat enough to not scare away the masses, smooth enough to allow for even pacing, and accessible enough for fans who want to watch. Many offer prize money, and some, such as Boston, Chicago, and New York, offer six-figure paychecks for first place. Most ultras, at least in the United States, are the exact opposite. They often occur on rocky, root-filled, narrow, steep, and slippery trails with big elevation changes. Organizers gleefully scare people away with names like Mountain Masochist, Badwater, Bear Bait, and Frozen Dead Guy. (laughs) (laughs) Most offer little or no prize money. And the distance is almost always a ballpark number because trails are so hard to accurately measure. That means that a 100-mile event could actually be 99.4 miles or 110, which is just as well because most courses don't have mile markers. (laughs) Yeah. I love that these things are masochistic in every possible way. (laughs) Yeah, like they're for people who want to torture themselves. So first I read an article about all of the ways that ultramarathons are hard on your body. I thought that would fit in well with this podcast. Yes. They're, of course, difficult for your body, but they're hard on the body in ways that aren't always the same as regular running or marathon running. Uh, Hallucinations, common. Blurred vision from swollen corneas, fairly common. Like, those first two alone is just like, maybe don't. (laughs) (laughs) Stress fractures, of course, are common in both uh, kinds of long-distance running. But in addition, uh, stress fractures of the pelvis and all of the leg bones are known to occur in ultramarathoners. Yikes. Cool. (laughs) Like, is that just, that's an occupational hazard? Like, they have higher risks of that over their lifetime or during an event? Both. Okay. Runners also need to be aware of the risk of hyponatremia, where drinking too much water or sports drinks results in the balance of nutrients in the body to be so off that your cells swell and burst. Cool. Uh, Hypothermia is more common due to the varied weather and times of day, whereas heat illnesses are more common in marathons. Blisters can also like end people's races and careers far more than in a regular marathon. Yep. Like if you get a piece of dust in your shoe, and especially because these are all trail races, like you can really screw up your feet in massive ways. Yeah, those can become infected really easily. Yeah, like uh, we know an ultra runner. Our friend Scott Burton has presented at Skeptic Camps and been a part of uh, the Winnipeg Skeptics, and he runs ridiculous long races like this Uh, and his longest like ongoing issue is blisters on the pad of his foot and he's tried so many different strategies to stop these things from happening like I think he currently wears three pairs of thin socks and like a special taping thing that he does and uh, all this just to prevent a blister he needs those new Nikes (laughs) totally Uh, on the pad of your foot yeah so painful yeah that's that's so hard so ultra runners have ridiculous specialists to see to them uh and he got a like fancy blister doctor to specifically look at this one problem and devise a solution for it it's like there's a profession for everyone out there (laughs) so another big problem for ultra runners uh during a marathon most people will eat energy gels made of like pure easy to digest carbs and drink sports drinks but during an ultra marathon the body is burning a lot more fat then it is carbs. Uh, well, not a lot more than carbs, but like it is also burning fat and it requires more like real food to go in. But that leads to GI problems. Mm-hmm. So the body is concentrating on running. So like clearly if you've been running for 24 hours, your body has 
like priorities, it needs to get away from whatever is going to eat it immediately. Uh, so digestion is not the focus. But if all of your blood supply is diverted from your GI tract, either the food is just going to sit there and not get digested, or you get dumping syndrome where everything is just immediately ejected as fast as possible. Uh, both not super fun to deal with on a trail. Nope. Yep. <laughs> Running uh, like that is going to increase your sympathetic tone in your nervous system and uh, decrease your parasympathetic tone. And so you're going to have all sorts of problems with digestion and uh, urine retention, uh, all sorts of dysregulation like that. Yeah, that's what I said, except in doctor words. <laughs> I love how Jem is like, I'm not studying. <laughs> No, I just, like, this is the exact, I'm yeah. sorry. I find this interesting, and this is the exact thing that I'm, Yeah. you know, we're, we're doing. It is very topical for you. Right now, so it is, it is very topical for me. Interestingly, cardiac problems are more rare in ultra runners than in regular marathons. Uh, some of the hypotheses are that ultras tend to be run at a lower intensity, which is measurable. So marathoners' hearts are often between 75 to 85% of their maximum heart rate for the duration of the race. Um, and ultra runners spend a lot more time at 50 to 65% of maximum heart rate. And I like this quote, elites tend to be on the higher end and the just happy to finish folks at the lower end. <laughs> <laughs> One of the cool things about doing lots of aerobic exercise is that your resting heart rate will become a lot lower. Mm -hmm. And it will be much slower to increase yeah. um, because your heart just ends up being a lot more efficient and every stroke will pump a lot more blood. Good job, little heart. So the other part of the cardiac thing is that uh, because ultra renders do tend to be older, any hidden underlying cardiac issues are like already discovered earlier on in their life when they were running normal person races. Uh, so they tend to like drop dead on the track less often. <laughs> right just good <laughs> yeah they self-selected out of that <laughs> yeah that's cool that's kind of like the fact that i don't remember what it is in canada right now but your life expectancy at birth is something like 78 years mm. but your life mm -hmm. expectancy when you're 36 is something like 84 years or something yeah because you've already made it past a bunch of the things that could kill you we made it past all the childhood diseases <laughs> yeah. yeah so why do people do this uh, the answer appears to be that they get belt buckles. <laughs> Actual ones or a disease that's called belt buckles? Actual belt buckles. Oh, I'm trying to imagine that disease. <laughs> Doesn't sound pretty. A localized rash. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. No uh, So the belt buckle tradition started in 1974 when logger Gordy Ainsley ran in a 100-mile horse race in California. He received a finisher's belt buckle just like the horseman got, and the tradition stuck. The pedestrian version of the race became the Western States Endurance Run, which is like the the Boston Marathon of ultra running. It's the one that you have to qualify to get into and so on and so forth. It's very fancy. On a more serious note, Amy Pope Fitzgerald of Chantilly, who has run both Marine Corps and JFK ultramarathons each year since 2012 and has completed one 100-miler, says, You have to almost trick your mind that you are invincible and that you are going to finish this. The ultras allow you to do something that's awesome, but you do it at your own pace. You don't have the pressure to finish at a certain time. As long as you're finishing, it's considered awesome. Cool. People want to test themselves, make themselves do amazing things that they didn't think they could do. Uh, I'd like to finish off by telling you about some of my favorite ridiculous ultramarathons. 
The Badwater 135 takes place in California. It covers 135 miles, starting in Lone Pine, California, reaching the summit of Horseshoe Meadow, which is 10,000 feet, then crossing Owens Valley to a 5,500-foot dirt road ascent to the highest paved point on Mount Whitney, California, one of the highest points in the U.S. Oh my god! It's uphill the entire way! (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty intense. 135 miles. It's just like my dad's walk to school. Yeah. (laughs) So uh, what if that's not long enough? What about 3,100 miles? What? What if you did it all in one city block? (laughs) <laughs> oh like you just run around oh i think i've heard of this you just run that around it sounds like around, around. actually like something that would cause extreme mental distress yep uh so what if we called it the self-transcendence 3100 mile race uh-huh uh it is the world's longest certified road race taking place to 6 a.m to midnight over 52 days and runners must average almost <laughs> 60 miles a day around one city block in order to finish within the time limit it takes place in Jamaica, Queens from June to August. Oh my god. You just run around one f-ing block for 3,100 miles. And like, obviously people do it to like, I don't know, find themselves or something. I guess. I can think of every other possible fun way. <laughs> right? <laughs> just take drugs, folks. yeah yeah you want transcendence they got drugs for that (laughs) so of course anybody who actually finishes that 3100 miles is a finisher good job what if that's not cutthroat enough for you i will present you with big dogs backyard ultra marathon easy enough in the beginning you get one hour to complete a run on a loop that is 4.167 miles long i feel like probably all of us could do that including me Mm mm-hmm If you complete the loop before the time is up, you have until the top of the hour to do whatever you want. Eat, sleep, fix your feet. At the top of the hour, you must be at the starting line ready to start the next loop. The race only ends when everyone else gives up and only one person completes the loop. (laughs) So one person wins, the rest DNF. (laughs) The winner receives a small gold coin inscribed, I survived. (laughs) Everyone else gets a silver coin saying, I gave my all in Big's backyard. The current record is 283 miles. It usually takes about three days. And you're sleeping at like 20 minute stretches. Yeah, you get like 11 minutes to sleep at the end of your thing at the towards the end. Like you're just an absolute zombie. Jem's face right now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was just thinking as Ashlyn is describing these ultra marathons, how I I do see some appeal in some of these because it is just like you're kind of just competing against yourself yeah you just have to it's not about who's first it's just it's just finishing and that's like that's very appealing to me one of the things that i like about med school is that there's no grade rounding you know we're not competing against each other we're just all trying to do our best and we can all pass Mm -hmm. but that idea is just horrifying (laughs) (laughs) because it is so so cutthroat yeah So, the guy who came up with that monstrosity also runs the Barkley Marathons. They used to occur in relative obscurity, but now, because of just how incredibly ridiculous they are, they have been the subject of several documentaries. The best one, in my opinion, is called the Barkley Marathons, The Race That Eats Its Young. It's currently on Amazon Prime, or you can get it on YouTube, I think, for like $3 or whatever they charge. Uh, I highly recommend it. It's very funny. 
So <laughs> the Barkley Marathons. It is run in Tennessee in a, what is it, Broken Head State Park? Something like that? No, I'm thinking of the Frozen Head State Park. Yeah, okay. Broken Head is, is an in area Manitoba around here. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's why I was thinking that can't be right. <laughs> so Frozen Head State Park in Tennessee. Theoretically, the course is 20.0 miles. The course changes every year, and it is always exactly 20.0 miles. The people who run the marathon will tell you that even if distance is just straight up added onto the course, it's still 20.0 miles. If you complete three complete laps, that is considered a fun run. (laughs) Almost no one completes a fun run. Because the terrain is excruciating. I was going to say, are there bears on this? (laughs) Uh, It's apparently one of the densest concentration of briars. And there's no clearing or anything. They don't help you get through this. You just have to like... Like, Do they hand you a machete at the starting line? Uh, you are not allowed to bring anything except a, uh, I believe you're allowed a compass. No electronics, no wayfinding equipment. Um, oh my god. Yeah. There's one race map that you have to make your own maps off of before you start. Oh my god. Yeah. They don't provide any maps to the individuals. There's one map that you're allowed to look at until the race starts. Oh, speaking of the race starting, when does it start? I don't know. Any time between noon and midnight. Like you just have to hang out and be like, oh, okay, we're going to start now. Yeah. Like, is that? So what the- oh, Jesus. One hour before race time, oh. he will blow a conch. And that is the only warning you get. Then you have one hour till then to get ready. But who can sleep? If you're waiting for the race to start. Actually, I think it's between midnight and noon. So yeah, it could. So some years it starts at 1 a.m. right after the time starts. Uh, some years it doesn't start till 9 a.m. And you could have gotten a good night's sleep. But did you? No. What? So yeah, the, the terrain is excruciating. Uh, there's nobody out there with you to make sure that you did this course. And there's no cameras allowed. So the way that they know that you've completed the whole course and not gone off track is that they have hidden books in the bush that you have to find. Uh <laughs> The, the number on your bib is the page number that you have to rip out of the book in order to prove that you have been to all of the books and thus through the whole race. You get a new bib at the start of every lap. <laughs> and every lap you have to change direction. So first you do it one way, then you do it the other way, just to maximize your confusion. And also because each lap takes eight-ish hours, sometimes you'll be in the day and sometimes you'll be in the dark. If you stop to sleep, you won't finish. It... It... It sounds like something that would literally kill people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like people would just get lost and nobody would ever find them. So for the first uh, many years that it was run, there were no winners. Uh, it was understood as a race that was unwinnable. And if you managed to do a fun run, you were doing great. Since then, there have been a handful of winners and even a few people who have won it multiple times in a row. The last time it was run was in 2019. The 2021 was canceled and uh, it was a wet year and no one finished. It was too miserable for anyone to finish. So maybe I missed it. What, what what makes a winner versus just somebody who did a fun run? Yeah. How many laps do you have to do? Five. Oh, okay. okay. So theoretically 100 miles, but actually many more. <laughs> and what what is the time limit that you have on this again? Uh, it's held over a long weekend. Uh, 60 hours overall. That's a less than three days. The cutoff for the 100-mile race is 60 hours, or an average of 12 hours per loop, and the cutoff for the 60-mile version of the race is 40 hours overall. So if you don't complete your fun run within 40 hours, it doesn't count. Oh my god. (laughs) (laughs) If you drop out, someone will play taps for you. (laughs) They They have a trumpet player for that. Um... 
the race doesn't start until the uh, the guy who's in charge is, he calls himself Lazarus Lake until he, he lights his cigarette. That is the starting signal. In order to get into this race, you have to find out how to get in. You have to so it's not published anywhere. You have to know the secret, write him a letter uh, explaining why you should be able to do this, and pay the registration fee of one dollar and sixty cents. <laughs> It is non-refundable if you don't get in. <laughs> Apparently thousands of people apply and they only let in 40 people or so every year. If you are accepted into the race, you will receive a letter of condolences. <laughs> <laughs> and he just, he came up with this after um, hearing the story about uh, James Earl Ray. James Earl Ray escaped from a prison nearby in the Tennessee woods and they searched for him. There was a big manhunt uh, over many days. And when they found him, he was only like eight miles from the prison because it's such rough terrain. And this guy being a cocky sort of person was like, I could have gotten a hundred miles away by then. (laughs) (laughs) So that is the basis for the race. Uh, When asked, he has said that he has never completed the race and doesn't think anyone should try. (laughs) I was going to ask, has he done it? Or was he just like, I could do this. I'll make other people do it. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And you do have to race underneath the Tennessee State Prison that is in this Frozen Head Park where James Earl Ray escaped from. Yeah, so I just looked up the winner's list. There have been 18 finishes by 15 people, and it has been run every year since 1986. And remember, any but like as if all of them finished in one year, they would all be finishers and winners. 18 finishes total. <laughs> Fantastic. Extremely recommend the documentary. Like, yeah, I want to watch this it is now. So funny and and so fun to just watch him be mean to these people, and they're there because <laughs> they want to be there. Uh, so we we showed this documentary on Halloween uh, to our friend Kira who came over and uh, like I've probably watched this thing six times just because every time I find out no that somebody hasn't watched them like we're watching it right now that's what's happening Uh, and so halfway through this documentary she's just like don't these people have homes that they could be in (laughs) (laughs) I really appreciate this last one because it is so over the top and it is so ridiculous and I love that it like doesn't take itself seriously. Oh yeah, for sure. It's not elitist at all. Like running is so serious for a sport that involves feet and only <laughs> feet. Like that's all you need to do it. It is so serious. I mean, and I'd argue that so, knees help. Like, well, right. But what I'm saying is like, you don't, shoes are important, but you don't need, you know, a, a ton of fancy equipment. You don't need an ice surface. You don't need like gymnast. You know what I mean? Like so many other sports are require so much other stuff. They have such a high barrier. But, of entry, yeah, yeah. But like literally anybody can try to run because unless you don't actually have feet, you can try. Right. Like, <laughs> I mean, and there's plenty of like adaptive things that let people without right. feet run too. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, you know, like that's getting into the weeds a little bit, but what I mean is like, it's just, it's a sport that involves putting one foot in front of the other. Like that is the basics of it. And it's so, so serious. And so I like this thing that's like, this terrain is not meant for running. It's probably going to injure you. We're going to make it so that it is going to be even more likely to do that. Why would you do this? But here you go. (laughs) Oh, I almost forgot my favorite part of the documentary. Uh, 
So most marathons, even ultra marathons, I would say 98% of them have aid stations, you know, somewhere where you can fill up on water or food. Right. Lazarus puts a water drop out on the course, I think two of them, uh, in the form of gallons of water left on the ground. And uh, sometimes runners come back and say, hey, Laz, the water's frozen. And he says, what do you want me to do? It's 10 degrees. (laughs) (laughs) It's spring in Tennessee. (laughs) That's what's going to happen. Are you are you required to purchase some kind of ridiculous amount of insurance prior to doing this? Oh, I have no like, idea. That like might be part his, of the his <laughs> waiver must be just something to read. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and you have to bring a license plate from your home state or country when you come. Uh, and there is a Winnipeg one on the wall of ones that were displayed. So someone from Winnipeg has done this. <laughs> is it Scott? No, he's never done it. <laughs> Apparently, he does know how to get in though. Ooh. Yeah. The first year, you have to bring a license plate. The second year, you have to bring whatever piece of gear Laz tells you to bring. One year, it was white t-shirts because he was out of shirts. So he just had all the entrance bring him t-shirts. Yeah. White t-shirts, flannel shirts, socks, whatever he needs that year. (laughs) That's amazing. I love this guy. He's quite the character. You'd have to be. The way you describe this documentary, that's the way I feel about Miami Connection. (laughs) Whenever I find out somebody hasn't seen it, they gotta see it. Anyway. All right, so now we've done people who go really low and people who stay on a flat plane. Now we're going to talk about people who go really high. between two high-flying topics, so in true L-U-E-E fashion, you get a non-atmospheric dive into both. (laughs) On May 29, 1953, Tenzing Norgay and Edmund Hillary reached the summit of Mount Everest. These two were part of the 9th British expedition to Everest, led by John Hunt. Well done on uh, putting those first climbers in the right order, Lauren. Yep. Thank you. Since 1953, 5,294 people have successfully climbed Mount Everest, in 9,159 successful summit climbs. Yes, many people have done it more than once. I thought that was going to be way higher number than that. Oh, wow. Like, I feel like you turn around and every hipster who wants to prove themselves has climbed Everest these days. Yep. Thousands more people have attempted the climb, and there are around 200 bodies of humans who died while climbing Everest, some of which, like Green Boots, who died in a 1996 attempt, are used as grisly waypoint markers for other climbers. I keep thinking that Hillary and Norgay reached the summit. Was It was some ancient event, but it happened the month after my father was born. And Edmund Hillary, can we guess when he died? Anybody? Is it going to be like the 80s? 2008. Good Lord. Yeah. <laughs> he was born in 19, died in 2008. So in these intervening 67 years, climbing Everest has been an ecological nightmare. In addition to the 200 people who have been left on the mountain, mostly because it is too dangerous to retrieve them, Climbers leave literal tons of trash and waste on Everest every year. And because there are only two major routes up the mountain, 
all of this waste is a huge localized problem. Human waste, because even mountaineers poop, well, more than marathoners, apparently. <laughs> it's all dumped into Gorak Shep, and that measures about 12,000 kilograms annually, which has understandably caused an ecological crisis. Oof. I'm doing a bad job of hiding my disdain for those who climb Everest. I don't agree that people should summit the highest mountain just because it's there. And the effects on the environment and the indigenous inhabitants are vast, and they are becoming irreparable. When something that was once a feat of will and spirit turns into a Disney Park-esque experience, complete with long lines and roped-off routes, you have to ask yourself some serious questions about why you want to do it. Climbing Everest has become a multi-million dollar per year business, catering to wealthy thrill-seekers, some of whom who have had very little mountaineering experience. On summit days, when weather conditions make it possible to reach the top of the mountain, people line up and wait for hours at the Hillary Step, which is a 12-meter wall of rock and ice at 8,763 meters, which is the last obstacle before the top when using the southern face. The southern face is the easiest climb. Though they're not quite at the pinnacle of the world, nearly 9,000 meters up makes for some very, very thin air, and the weight and long lines make for many discarded bottles of oxygen from climbers. And I found that the oxygen used to climb Everest can only be manufactured in one plant in Russia because of the timing of getting it there. And it can't be flown because you can't fly pressurized oxygen bottles. So they have to be trucked across to Nepal and each one weighs about five pounds and then they're just discarded by these climbers. Some 200 people have now climbed Everest without supplemental oxygen. I still hold them in similar disdain I have for those who climb the mountain, but even I have to admit that this is a pretty amazing feat of endurance. That's, that is something. Mm -hmm. Holy smokes. The first was Reinhold Messner and Peter Hebler, and they did so in 1978, despite most of the research available saying it was impossible. But they had those fancy Nike shoes. <laughs> it was 1978, so even Nike wasn't making completely fancy shoes. Messner was an experienced mountaineer who had lost both his brother and most of his toes in a 1970 climb of Nanga Parbat, <laughs> which is the ninth highest mountain in the world. Oh, no. <laughs> his brother and his toes. <laughs> he was also the first person to climb all 14 of the 8,000ers, which, as the name implies, are the mountain peaks above 8,000 meters. Most of these summits that Messner has done have been without supplemental oxygen supplies climbed in full or partial alpine style, which is without using base camps and carrying all the food equipment and everything required for the climb on your back. Holy. Yeah. That is impressive. That is a thing <laughs> to yep. do. Like you are hardcore. I want to know what his, what his genetics say about his oxygen usage. In 1978, when Messner and Habler climbed Everest without oxygen, Everyone told them they were just going to be two more bodies on the mountain, that it was impossible. They talked to all the like doctors and scientists and everything. Everyone's like, you're just going to die, dude. When they reached Camp 2, most of the way up the mountain, Habler had food poisoning from a tin of sardines that they had eaten on the way up. <laughs> he stayed behind, and Messner and two Sherpa guides continued on. I can't, for all the research I did, find the names of these guides, which is a major part of the problem with Everest climbing. Messner and his two guides became stuck for two days in a storm with 200 kilometer per hour winds. 
Oh my god. <laughs> they returned to the camp, and somehow, Messner, despite almost dying stuck in the windstorm, convinced Habler, who still believed that only death waited on the mountain, to join him. Like, he just straight up thought that he was going to die and was like, all right, I'll do it, though. Yeah, I'm here anyway. It's wild. Yeah, like, I'm not getting back down. What what do I got to lose? <laughs> yep. <laughs> the second attempt was a success, pulled out by the skin of their teeth. On the last day, they only communicated with hand signals because every breath was required for climbing. Because of frequent collapses, they did the last 80 meters crawling up the mountain. Messner later wrote about the experience. He's published over 80 books about his worldwide adventures. He, he wrote, In my state of spiritual abstraction, I no longer belong to myself and to my eyesight. I am nothing more than a single, narrow, gasping lung floating over the mists and summits. Messner went on not only to summit the 8,000ers, but become an advocate for climbing mountains alpine style and without supplemental oxygen. Two years later, five days after I was born, coincidentally, he became the first person to solo Mount Everest, again without supplementary oxygen. Jeez. On this climb, he also became the first to traverse the Norton Collier Gorge on the North Face. When the tallest mountain in the world is considered over, and people have breathed the literal rarefied air and survived, what challenges then lay ahead for those with more dollars and cents and a need to break records? How about skydiving from the edge of space? No, thanks. Nope. Definitely more money than cents. Yeah. Yep. Uh, I, I, I don't want to do skydiving ever. Ever. <laughs> I'm going to pause here for a second and talk about the layers of the atmosphere. I'm going full Jem Newman in this segment. <laughs> <laughs> Mount Everest is 8.85 kilometers tall and still in our first layer, the troposphere, where all living things on Earth, save those flying spiders, exist. <laughs> there are spiders in the stratosphere. If you go above 12 kilometers, you're in the stratosphere with the flying spiders. Between 50 and 80 kilometers is the mesosphere, 80 to 700 is the thermosphere, and 700 to 10,000 kilometers is the exosphere. Past that, you are no longer affected by Earth's gravity and therefore considered out of our atmosphere. The edge of space is an arbitrary line 100 kilometers up from sea level in the thermosphere. The highest commercial airliner today reaches about 13.7 kilometers, just at the edge of the stratosphere. The Concorde, everyone remember those? Yep. Mm -hmm. They would reach 18 kilometers. These planes are self-contained and pressurized because there's almost no air exchange between the troposphere and the stratosphere. On October 14, 2012, Felix Baumgartner jumped from 39 kilometers above sea level, firmly in the stratosphere. He put on a spacesuit, climbed into a capsule attached to an atmospheric balloon, ascended for two hours, depressurized the capsule, opened the door, and leapt out of this perfectly good aircraft. <laughs> Baumgartner set several world records, including becoming the first person to break the sound barrier without the use of engine power. <laughs> he free fell for four minutes and 19 seconds. Picture the rocketeer here. He deployed his parachute, and he came safely to the ground after approximately 10 minutes. 10 minutes! From the stratosphere. His maximum airspeed was 1,342.8 kilometers per hour, which works out to Mach 1.24. <laughs> the previous record for a balloon jump has been held for more than 50 years by Joseph Kittinger, who jumped from 31 kilometers in 1960. Baumgartner held on to his record for just over two years, 
when Google exec Alan Eustace jumped from 40 kilometers up in the stratosphere. Baumgartner had NASA scientists for support and Red Bull putting up the money, funding a pressurized capsule, but Eustace wore a specially designed spacesuit and dangled directly from the balloon system. He detached from the balloon with the aid of a small explosive and then fell at a speed that topped over 1,300 kilometers per hour, creating a sonic boom that he didn't hear, but those on the ground who were watching did. Eustace was worried about the weight of the capsule, which also is called a gondola in space jump parlance, and he felt he could get higher without one. And you can't take a plane up that high, so this is why they use pressurized balloons. Look, if you can't take a plane up there, maybe that's a hint. Yeah, that was my first clue too. Oh, God. In 2011, Eustace connected with the co-founders of Paragon Space Development, and they were former Biosphere 2 crew members, Tabor McCallum and Jane Pointner, whose company specialized in creating life support systems for environments like deep sea diving and outer space. When I say balloon, I don't mean for you to picture the house from up. <laughs> Eustace's balloon was 160 meters in diameter and filled with pure helium. So it goes down into the ocean with Laura's people and up into the air with mine. <laughs> and yes, killjoy that I am, I find this a waste of our planet's dwindling helium resources. The reason they use it is helium can reach extremely low temperatures without freezing, so it remains the best gas for these balloons. I really wish I could just read you the June 2017 article by Laura Parker in The Atlantic, because it goes into depth of how the team and Eustace prepared and tested his suit, but it's in the show notes and I suggest you give it a read. For his 2014 jump, Alan Eustace spent two hours beforehand breathing pure oxygen to prevent the bends. He documented his jump with two GoPro cameras attached to his suit. It was a very low-key affair. Well, Google, remember, he, he was still their VP at this time, and after he did the jump, he went back to his desk the next day. Google had offered to help with the expenses. Eustace refused because he didn't want this jump to become a media event. Eustace spent 4 minutes and 27 seconds in freefall, and then deployed his main chute, beating Baumgartner's freefall record by 8 seconds. Until I started my research for this segment, I hadn't realized that Eustace had broken Baumgartner's records. Like several million other folks, I watched Felix Baumgartner's Jump Live in 2012. Did anybody else watch it? No, but I remember hearing about it. I was aware of it, but I don't think I tuned in. It was the most watched live event on YouTube at that point. Any subsequent attempts will have to wait until we can develop new technologies. The planet's helium supply is shrinking, as I said, and Eustace's flight was held to its height by how much the balloon could expand. Helium balloons that can expand bigger than football fields are very hard to come by, and custom-made inner space suits are expensive and require rigorous testing. So, he's reached the limit for now. I don't understand these people at all. <laughs> Me either. I mean, I could see running a distance marathon. Yeah. I could not see going up to the edges where you can see the curvature of the Earth and then saying, I'm just going to jump. Yep. Alright folks, thank you for exploring the limitations of human ability with me. People are strange, very strange. Possibly we have too much leisure time now that we've invented all of this uh, agriculture and whatnot. <laughs> <laughs> we have to find things to make life harder. <laughs> so what have people been enjoying lately? What's something nice? Who wants to go first? You can. 
This is the only uh, research that I did for this episode. <laughs> Try to come up with something nice. Uh, I've uh, got my, my neurosciences midterm tomorrow, so that's really all I've been thinking about. But last night, I did actually read uh, a really good one-shot, Marvel Snapshots Civil War by Saladin Ahmed, Ryan Kelly, and Rochelle Rosenberg. Uh, yeah, it, it was great. Um, it's just a single comic book. I think it's double length, but it's it's a really good read. Highly recommend it. Uh, Saladin Ahmed is just a wonderful writer. Uh, I'll follow him anywhere he goes, basically. Yeah, he's a great Twitter follow, too. Absolutely. Um, I'm currently also reading Zoe Punches the Future in the Dick by Jason Pargin. <laughs> and it's okay. Um, you know, it's a David Wong joint. It is what it is. It's a, it's a fun read. And since I finally 100%ed Hades, uh, I figured I, I I had to move on to something else. Uh, so I've been playing Wintermoor Tactics Club on Switch. It's a fun little tactics game. Uh, kind of, it's quite delightfully written. Um, the tactics isn't super deep, but it's fun and uh, and it's very charming. So I recommend uh, you give that a shot too if you like tactics or things that are cute. My Something Nice is a TV show that we have been watching on YouTube. Uh, it's a British show originally, and they get five, like, you know, B-level comedian celebrities to come on this show, and they give them all sorts of absolutely ridiculous tasks to do. So again, with the theme of, I really love watching people do things that are hard and pointless uh, and struggle with them. And it's very funny. So, for example, they might be shown into a plain room with a white table that has a watermelon on it. And they open the envelope with the task, and the task says, eat as much watermelon as you can. You have one minute. Your time starts now. Uh, so some of the contestants, for example, uh, lifted up the watermelon and just smashed it on the ground. Uh-huh. Uh, and then proceeded to eat as much of it as possible off of the floor. Uh, some of them uh, were a little bit smarter and cracked it open on the side of the table, so yeah. it wasn't as messy. That's what you got to do. But the really enterprising contestants are like, well, it doesn't say anywhere here that I can't leave this room. So they take it to the <laughs> kitchen and they cut it open. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so most of the tasks have some element of this, like if you you hem yourself in by your expectations and you mm -hmm. don't think about all of the possibilities that are not spelled out in this letter. So if it's not explicitly disallowed in the letter, you can do anything you want within the timeline. <laughs> the classic thumb thumbtacks and candle. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And so we have watched like 10 seasons of this show in the last couple of weeks <laughs> oh, uh, because it's just extremely addictive and it's so funny and like they're making fun of themselves and making fun of each other and the tasks like just expanding your mind to think about what would you do if you were there and after a few seasons you like you get the normal tricks like do I have to stay in this room one of them was uh, propel this pee the furthest distance and make sure it lands on this carpet uh, and you can't touch it with your hands. So he uh, flicked it onto the carpet and then rolled up the carpet and uh, took it in a wheelbarrow <laughs> around the yard like seven or eight times so that the pea had in fact traveled like 10 kilometers and then landed on the mat. 
I, I feel like you could definitely like just slurp it up and then run around with it in your mouth or something. (laughs) Perhaps. Yeah. I don't remember the exact wording of that task, but uh, there are so many ways to accomplish everything. And uh, they'll often start the thing by saying like, okay, so here's the task. Clearly nobody is going to do the obvious thing and just like flick the pee down the carpet, right? (laughs) Who's up first? These two people who did exactly that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, It really, um, and I posted it to our, our group earlier this month, it really scratches that itch of mine for like escape room puzzles. Uh, it works out that same part of my brain, which I really like. That sounds delightful. I uh, I think uh, Laura and I will have to give that a watch. Yeah, yeah, totally. Highly recommend. What are you enjoying lately, Lauren? Well, I finished uh, N.K. Jemisin's debut novel, The Hundred Thousand Kingdoms. And oh, nice. I'm about halfway through The Broken Kingdoms now which is the the follow-up to it. And it's been a long time since I've had to sit after I finished a book and just recollect myself and bring myself back into, like, the world is so rich and so beautiful and it's an amazing story. And I don't know why I didn't get into Jemison before now. I've been following her on Twitter for years. Mm-hmm. And... An excellent story, and I can't wait to read more of her work. That's great. So that's what I'm enjoying. The Broken Earth trilogy by her has uh, polyamorous pirates, so that's my recommendation right there. (laughs) There is a triad in the Broken Kingdoms. I I have read the first two of the three books in the Broken Earth trilogy. Uh, I've paced them out like every... I'll read one and then wait two years, basically, and read another. Like, uh, I I love her writing. and I've read, I think, two of her short stories as well. There's another. Hmm. But the, the Broken Earth trilogy is fabulous, but it's also like it's it's like a it's a gut punch. Every book is is full. Like they're very rich, but they're hard reads sometimes. Um, so maybe I'll have to uh, I'll definitely have to go back and and read her debut novels because I've heard nothing but good things. I'm excited to explore more of her uh, of her work. I figured I'd start at the very beginning. It's a very good place to start. I believe her novella Emergency Skin is available for free on Amazon Prime. If you have that, like you can just download the ebook for free. Very cool. I just use the um, the Libby system and mm-hmm. borrow them from the library because that is definitely better than giving Amazon your money. Yes. <laughs> She also has, um, uh, I, I believe, her new series. I don't actually know if it's a series. I know that there's at least one novel out right now. Um, I believe it's kind of inspired by or a response to uh, Lovecraft. We've seen a lot of uh, authors of color um, sort of reclaiming uh, weird fiction uh, from its racist roots. And uh, yeah. so I'm, I'm looking forward to reading that one, too. Me, too. That's called, um, I believe, The City We Became. That came out 2020. Nice. You're up, Laura. Oh, man. (laughs) (laughs) You knew it was coming. I know. I know. Just like winter every year. Something nice. I haven't been watching a lot of TV lately. I have been enjoying a book that Jem has already recommended, and he very kindly bought me a copy, which is called Squeeze Me. And it is very fun. I would recommend it. It's just 
it's nice, especially if you've been doing some technical reading or something. It's just a nice, fun read. So that's been a nice way to unwind. I also uh, enjoyed recently making my fancy all-day pastries when I was uh, working from home slash not feeling well enough to work, but okay enough to fold and roll out some dough every hour or so. And they are divine. They were so good. They're, they are awesome. So that was, that was fun. It's the kind of thing that you have to plan for and you can't just do on a whim, or at least I can't just do on a whim. So I enjoyed being able to do that. Sounds delicious. It was. So uh, what are we talking about next month? So next month, I think that we should talk about food aid. Um, because that actually comes in a lot of forms and it's actually vital to the way that society runs or doesn't run depending on where you are and the situation. So we will look at different aspects of food and helping each other. Excellent. Wonderful. Sounds good to me. All right. Well, thanks for joining me, everyone. Thank you, Ashlyn. Thanks. Have a great night. You and too. have a, a happy winter break, everybody. If you get a winter break, enjoy whatever you choose to celebrate. <laughs> Happy New Year to everyone. Hopefully 2021 is better than 2020. Fingers crossed. F feels like a low bar, but uh, <laughs> yeah. let's hope. It can only go up, right? Let's crawl out of the dumpster and be on fire in the, in the alley instead. That's all I have. <laughs> this is fine. <laughs> Good night. Good night. Good night. <laughs> Life, the Universe, and Everything Else is produced by Jem Newman and Ashlyn Noble, with mix and tech production by Jem Newman. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is with a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, or by sharing an episode with a friend. Original music is produced by Ian James, and this episode was edited by Jem Newman. Once again, even though we're in the same room, I think Lauren and I clapped at different times, so that's <laughs> I may, uh, since I don't, I won't have a lot to say, I may be doing some studying during this. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. I'll leave it alone. I think that's, that really levels the playing field because then it's not just like some super secret weapon that gets pulled out at the last minute and, and that kind of thing. Pardon me, Laura. It levels the track and field. Fuck off. <laughs> God damn it, Newman. Like putting your just... finger up for these puns that you must make. Here I'm like, oh, Jem noticed a technical issue that's going to make our recording of poor quality. I should stop my important thoughts so that he can say something idiotic. Okay, Jem, go for it. Oh, I wanted to insert something that would make the recording of poor quality. <laughs> God damn it, Newman. Well, you insist that I be here rather than studying. I saw you put your textbook in front of you. Yeah, we all watched you. We know what you're doing. At least I'm paying attention at the moment. I'm also studying the cranial foramina. I'll show you a cranial foramina. 
and poke on. you right in it. Yeah. It's funny. So many people say, I need this like I need a hole in the head. Well, you need lots of holes in your head. Let me tell you. <laughs> yeah, Limitless. Is there a theme song to that movie or something that would make... I don't care. I've never seen it. Neither have I. I hear, actually, that um, while the movie was kind of bad, there was a, I think, a one-season uh, television procedural like that spun off of it that was actually quite good. It wasn't bad. The series was good. Yeah. Dave and I watched the movie and then the series in like a span of a two-day marathon. <gasps> wow. An ultra-marathon, if you will. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Really, the foramen ovale only has the mandibular branch of the trigeminal? Fuck, <laughs> Jen. Huh. God damn it. So how many foramina are there total? Oh, goodness. In the in the skull? Yeah. Um, oh, there are so many. Like dozens. Oh. Yeah. All kinds um, of tiny little cracks. Yeah, well, like, they, like there are a bunch of little, like, holes, and then they're also, like what you might consider cracks because they're it's where bones don't quite join because your Mm -hmm. skull is made of of so many different bones most of which are sutured together over most of the skull but not all of the skull right you've got 12 pairs of cranial nerves and Mm. a lot of them exit through their own foramina or uh they'll sometimes you know like uh, several exit through the jugular so there's there's some sharing but there's there's lots of nerves and then there's uh there's some nerves that actually come out of the skull and re-enter the skull. Uh, so yeah, there's there's lots going on. Inefficient creator. Oh yeah, there there's <laughs> there's some hilarious uh, like the recurrent laryngeal nerve is the obviously the the most well known example of this. Where in a human, instead of traveling, you know, a few a few centimeters, it travels, you know, all the way down underneath the aortic arch on the left. And underneath the brachiocephalic trunk on the right, and, and doesn't it also do that in giraffes? It does that in giraffes too. So <laughs> it's like so it's like a dozen feet long. Yeah. Uh, instead of you know uh, you know a handful of centimeters, um, but there, there's a lot of stuff like that uh, where things will exit the skull uh, and then re-enter the skull over and over again. It makes me think of that oncologist we met at the uh, Creation Museum. Yep. <laughs> like he went through all of this and still believes that someone made this. Mm-hmm. There's a yeah. bigger reason we just don't understand it yet. <laughs> Every once in a while, there's a few of my um, classmates and I that will will post uh, examples of bad design back and forth because <laughs> there's there's so many all like obvious poor choices made in the design of the the human body.
night. 